We are in chapter 11 tonight. Um, we, we should make it all the way through this chapter. Uh, we are going to talk about the two witnesses and then the final trumpet. So we're, we've still been in the trumpets for the past several weeks, and we're um, finally coming on the seventh and final trumpet. All right, so you'll remember last week I showed you this picture, but um, we are uh, kind of still in, we're beginning with that final interlude. And then the seventh trumpet, and you can see those parallel structures. It parallels with the multitude from every nation um, that we read about in chapter 7. And then the seventh seal, um, which is uh, the first part of chapter 8. And so uh, we're just covering the two witnesses and then the seventh trumpet. Uh, let's go ahead and read uh, the first 14 verses. You'll see that on your handout. All right. Then I was giving a measuring rod like a staff. I was told, come, come and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample over the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days wearing sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to, find, wants to harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. <clears throat> anyone who wants to harm them must be killed in this manner. They have authority to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the authority to over the waters to turn them into blood. And to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast will, that comes up from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie on the streets of the great city that is prophetically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, members of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been torment, been a torment to the inhabitants of the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and those who saw them were terrified. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. At that moment there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming very soon. All right, so let's first talk about this measuring the temple that we see in the very first two verses. kind of seems to be a standalone image before we get to the witnesses, um, but I think they run together pretty well. But this, these first two uh, verses, um, we're told... He was given a measuring rod like a staff. He was told to come and measure. Um, this is an important part of it. Uh, this, again, we're seeing this in the Old Testament. This is an Old Testament image once again being presented. And Zechariah, the uh, prophet, um, a similar event happens. He sees a man with a measuring line in his hand. He asks, what are you go- where are you going? He answered me to measure Jerusalem to see what it is, what it is width and what it is length. Um, and then... Just just to catch this last part, why is the measuring happening in Zechariah? I will be a wall, this is the Lord speaking, I will be a wall of fire all around it, says the Lord, and I will be the glory within it. 
Um, so this, this measuring of Jerusalem and of the temple particularly and Zechariah specifically tied to, connected to um, God sort of creating a wall, protection, you know, with that, that sort of language. So it's protecting. Um, it's, a, it's a promise to protect the city there in Zechariah. Well, it happens again in Ezekiel, a similar image. Um, in the 25th year of our exile, you know, Ezekiel it sees a lot of images um, he sees a vision of God. He's brought to Israel. He's in, he's in Babylon in exile, but he's brought to Israel. He sees a wall around the outside of the temple area. And then he measures it. Um, the length of the measuring reed in the man, man's hand was... Uh, so another man who's holding a measuring uh, rod, just like in, um, like in Zechariah. Um, and then and he's told... Uh, he's told to measure everything. This in Ezekiel, you see, I've got it up here. It's chapters forty through forty-three, chapters forty through forty-two, really, and then the, the first part of chapter forty-three is explain, explaining it. But it's two chapters long of, of Ezekiel being told, "Go measure this part of the temple. Go measure this part of the temple." And it goes, it works from the outside all the way into the inner part of the temple. It gives a very detailed explanation of what to measure. But then at the end of it, catch this. Why is the measuring happening? And this is the beginning of chapter 43. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So once again, this is an image of of God, of the Lord, being in the temple, of of protection, of being present once again in the temple. if you read all the way through Ezekiel, the beginning of Ezekiel is this image of the glory leaving the temple. Well, here the glory is returning to the temple. And again, it's a sign that, that you know, the, the, the temple, the people, um, Jerusalem is once again under the protection of God. And so in both Ezekiel and Zechariah, the vision of the measuring temple is tied directly to God's protection, God's indwelling. So that language of glory, the glory filled the temple um, and both of those prophets. And so it's clear that um, what's being tied here, this measuring of the temple, is specifically um, is tied to protection of the temple. Now, John doesn't spend near the time. He only has two verses, two of the, um, two of, two, you know, a few sentences about it. Uh, he doesn't spend near the time describing the measuring of the temple that Zechariah and especially that Ezekiel does. But again, he's seeing an, he's seeing an Old Testament image of measuring um, and it's closely tied to the protection of that temple. So um, in the Old Testament image and in both Zach and in John and in, in Revelation, it's, it's, a, it's tied to a protection of the temple. So why is John being told to measure the temple? And it's once again directly tied to a protection of the temple. Because look, it's just almost it's like it's assumed that the reader knows what that means, the, the measuring the temple. They, it's like it's assumed that they know what that means. Come and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure that court outside. Why? Leave that, for it is given over to the nation. So in other words, the inner part of the temple, um, the main part of the temple is protected, but the, out, the outside of the temple, the courtyard, is not protected. Okay, So um, obviously there's a clear connection um, between measuring the temple and, and John just assumes that the readers know that that refers to protecting the temple. Measuring the temple means protection of the temple. All right, so look at that again. These first two verses, it's on your, on your sheet there as well. What um, three things is John told to measure? Now again, Ezekiel, he's told to measure everything. It's very detailed. 
Um, uh, Zechariah is a little bit more detailed than John, but not nearly as detailed. But what are the three things that John is told to measure? Yeah, okay. So that is something... So it's, it's significantly different that John doesn't spend near the amount of time and that John assumes the reader knows that what he means by measure the temple means there's a sign of protection. But the ones worshiping there, measure the ones worshiping there, that stands out as particularly odd here in this Old Testament image of measuring um, is tied to or it's assumed that it means protection. Um, and so the people who are in there, those who are worshiping in the temple are also being told, or John's being told to measure them as well. That's very significant. Um, if, we, if we assume, if we take from this, that he's, telling, he's calling for protection, right? There's a call for protection. We've already seen that in the book of Revelation um, and other places and using different images, the seal of God, right? It's a seal in order to protect the, the, those, those who are sealed by the, um, by the seal of the Lamb, right? Um, so we see the temple, the altar, and those who worship there. Um, the, the, the individuals are worshiping are, are to be protected. Um, so let's turn to another part of this and try to figure out what it might mean. Why do you think the court outside the temple is left out? Why is that not also being given over to uh, being measured as well? Any thoughts on that? Okay. All right. Yeah. Leave it out for his um, given over to the nations. Right. Yeah. They will trample over the holy city for forty-two months. All right. So um, yeah. So the uh, the temple clearly. Um, so here, let's look at the layout of the temple. Um, I don't know if you can see this, but I'll just tell you what it is. This is um, uh, uh, Herod's temple. Okay. Now Herod's temple is the most recent temple um, that existed in in uh, Jerusalem in the time that John wrote Revelation. That John sees the vision. Now, if we follow what most scholars believe that that the, that. Uh, the temple, as well as Jerusalem, was actually destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D. Um, there was a siege of, of Jerusalem. There was a revolt um, of, the, of the Jews, and it led to, to Rome coming in and um, destroying the temple, destroying the um, people. It actually lasted several years because they were able to kind of be bared, barred inside the city pretty well. But eventually the Romans do come in. They conquer um, uh, Jerusalem. But up to this, so in 95, which is about when we believe Revelation was written, it would have been about 20 to 25 years since this temple had been destroyed. But this is the temple that most people would have had in mind as John is describing a temple. And so you have this part in here. This is the, this is the temple. All right. If you go back to the Old Testament, Solomon's temple, the details that go into Solomon's temple, that's this part right here. Now, this isn't actually Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple is destroyed by Babylon. Um, and then rebuilt and then uh, reworked by Herod. But the point is, is that this is actual the prescribed part of the temple by God. This is what God describes. This part out here is kind of extra. Part of what happens is, if you can see this, I don't know if you can see it, but G, it's the court of the Gentiles. All of this out here um, is, is called the court of the Gentiles. And now the reason they need that is because 
in, in uh, the first century and beyond, right? Um, at, and during the time of Jesus and then beyond and even before that, whenever this was originally built, I think it was about 30 A.D., I think is when it was built. Um, uh, Jewish people had kind of been spread out. Right. Um, it's called diaspora. You see a lot of it in the book of Acts. We hear a lot about, the, you know, there's there's uh, there's Jewish worshipers all over the place in the Roman Empire. And that's because of um, different exiles, different um, uh, diasporas where people have spread out. And what's happened when when Israel, when when the people of God spread out, a lot of non-Jewish speakers are not a lot, not a, a lot of non-Jewish people um, marry Jews, they um, associate with Jews, and they become worshipers of God, um, of the Jewish God themselves. And so they had to create this space because Gentiles are considered um, ceremonially unclean. They created this space that allowed Gentile worshipers of God to come into Jerusalem and worship God. And so they had this space out here. Um, Now we're told, um, and this is kind of my thinking, is that, you know, the most recent, this is the most recent temple. Again, it's been destroyed 20 years before this was written, but it's still the image that most of John's original readers would have read about. So this outer court being the, the, the court of the Gentiles, um, why would, why would God, John's vision um, describe this part as being trampled on? This is the part that's protected. This is the part that's being trampled on. Is it because uh, John has um, got bias against non-Jewish um, worshipers of God, non-Jewish Christians? Um, I really don't think that that's what it is. I don't think that John has um, got any sort of bias or race racism towards uh, non-Jewish people, non-Jewish Christians. I don't. I, I, I mean, he he's a he's a Jewish Christian in diaspora. Most of the people that he's writing to, a lot of the people that he's writing to in the different set of the seven churches, probably weren't Jewish. A lot of them were Jews, probably, but a lot of them weren't. So I don't think that that's what. What that image is is some sort of bias, and, and of course it's also from God, so we would say that it's not a, it wouldn't be a biased image from God, right? Um, but I think what it is, and this is kind of my theory, obviously a lot of these images in, in all in Revelation, we're, um, we're not guessing, but we're taking educated guesses sometimes. I think what it symbolizes is that the Roman Empire has, the, the, the Romans, the Greeks, um, that, that are most associated with Christianity and with Jewish people, outside of Jewish people um, in this time, as a nation, as an empire, has rejected Christianity, right? I mean, this, we're in the midst of persecution. Um, the, the rulers of Rome have rejected Christianity. They've re- rejected Christ. And so, I, I mean, specifically this, this word, the nations, the nations are used. Now, I, so I, what I think it really represents is, is that... Um, Rome, the nations have rejected um, Christ, have rejected um, the God of Jesus. And so the space that's sort of reserved for those nations is trampled on, is kind of destroyed. And what's interesting about it is it's the court of the Gentiles. It's their own court, right? So what's being trampled, what's being destroyed is actually the, the very court that they are, that's meant to invite them into worship of God. And so it's almost like they are... Um, the, the Gentiles, the Gentile nation's rejection of Christ, um, it, it's the nation itself, but it's a rejection of their own invitation into to God. Um, and so I, I, that's kind of what I pick up on that, especially as you see this image of that's the outer courts. That was for the Gentiles. Um, and it's the, the Gentile nations that are, um, that are trampling over it, right? And so, um, again, John, I don't, I don't think that, and we wouldn't say that about individual 
Greeks, right? We wouldn't say that about individual Romans even. We know there are Romans who accept Christ, but as a whole, the nation has rejected him. Um, and so what John is seeing, again, it, I don't think it's literal. I don't, I, I don't hold to a literal interpretation of any of Revelation, um, but it's symbolic. And so while the Jerusalem tri- temple would have been an important part for John and other Jewish Christians, a significant part of Christian theology from the very beginning is that the temple is not required anymore, right? That is a significant part of theology, of, 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 of Jesus coming. He's come specifically to demonstrate, to reveal that God is not bound up in the temple. God is, um, God in, in Christ is being made known everywhere, right? The Spirit comes and, and in, even argues that even more, the infilling of the Holy Spirit. So what's being demonstrated there is that in the incarnation of, of God, um, and then, then in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, uh, that uh, God's presence is not reserved to some building, but rather it's, it's in you, it's in me, right? Um, it's the in- indwelling of, of God in us, right? And so John is told again, who is John is told to measure again? What all is he told to measure? This part of the temple and the worshipers, right? Um, so the temple that John sees, I don't think it's a literal temple, um, I think he's thinking of another temple. Um, I, I think it represents something, rather. It's a symbol of the believers who are themselves the temple of God. Look at these verses. 1 Corinthians, these are new, this is theology from the New Testament, right? It's, throughout, it's, it's a thorough understanding of Christian faith. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do y'all not know that y'all are God's temple? That God's Spirit dwells in y'all? Not in the temple, right? Not in some physical building, but in you as a church, right? That's what he says to the Corinthians. In Hebrews, we get a similar message. Christ, however, was faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if we hold firm the confidence and the pride that belong to hope. So now we are his house, right? And then First Peter as well. Let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So again, I think that what, what John is really trying to get at is that the temple that he sees, he sees a building... But with the measuring of the individuals um, and with Christian theology um, being firmly rooted in the idea that, that God is not located in a building, but God is located in individuals and, and Christian people and specifically as a church, um, what the temple represents is the people, right? The, the, the church itself. And so the vision is symbolic. Um, and with that, um, it's a word of hope. It's a word of protection. What is being measured? The temple and the people there, right? They are being measured for the sake of protection. Um, And so as God's spiritual dwelling place, the believers um, who will be persecuted, they will experience persecution and suffering in that way, but they will not um, be shaken, right? They will not be destroyed. Um, And then one final comment on on the first couple verses, because I know I've only made it to the first couple verses. But um, that number, 42 months, um, again, anytime we see a number in the book of Revelation, we should understand that it's a symbolic number, 42 um, months is, uh, it's also borrowed from the book of Daniel. Daniel refers to it quite a bit. Um, 42 months is 1,260 days. Um, John will use that later. Um, and then at other times we'll hear three and a half that number. Um, three and a half is half of seven. Seven is a perfect number. Um, so there's this period of time that, that this persecution or that this suffering is happening John identifies it as three and a half years, which is an imperfect number, obviously, because it's half of the perfect number, right? Um, and so that, I think that that simply is what that, that number represents. It's not a literal number. It's to, to communicate what it is. It's, it's um, less than perfect. Um, 
half of perfect. <laughs> All right, so then uh, Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza um, says this, Revelation 11, verses 1 and 2, is best understood as a prophetic announcement of reversal. Christians who now suffer the oppression and persecution of the nations will be protected in the end, while the nations will suffer the end times plagues and punishment of God's wrath. Okay, so again, it's a reversal. The people that are reading Revelation to begin with are suffering, right? They're suffering under persecution. What's being um, described here is that um, in verses 1 through 2, there's a reversal that takes place. It is um, the Christians who are being protected, um, the, the, those who follow Christ who are being protected, while um, the nations who have persecuted them are actually the ones suffering, um, as is most of the book of Revelation. All right, let's turn to the, um, to the two witnesses. Um, let me read again these, these few verses here. And I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days wearing sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Anyone who wants to harm them must be killed in this manner. They have authority to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have authority over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. All right, so as we move to these two witnesses... Um, again, we might be tempted to move on from the image of the temple, but um, I think that these are deeply connected. It look, feels like two different images, but I think they're a part of the same vision. Um, and so I think it, it's helpful for us to, to understand. We're coming out of the image of the temple, the people, the Christian, the believers being protected um, into this image here. All right, with that, with that uh, stated, why do you think there's two witnesses? Why is there two witnesses? I mean this question kind of practically speaking. So think about it in a different context. Why would you want two witnesses to something? Right, yeah. So uh, Deuteronomy 19.15 says, A single witness shall not suffice to convict a person of any crime or wrongdoing in connection with any offense that may be committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be sustained. In other words, you know, it, it why two witnesses? Because one doesn't suffice, right? One witness isn't enough. You need more than one witness. Um, you need at least two or three witnesses in order for, um, for the evidence to be believed, right? Um, so just practically speaking, there's a reason to have two witnesses. Let's look again at verses 5 through 6. Um, here we go. Five, verse 5 through 6. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Anyone who wants to harm them must be killed in this manner. They have the authority to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have authority over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike every earth with every kind of plague. Does that sound familiar? Anything in those passages sound familiar to you? Or those two verses? Moses, Moses uh, 
right? It turns water into blood. And, and, and then kind of before expounding on it anymore, John just says, to strike the earth with every kind of plague, right? Moses famously is um, you know, the prophet who declares or brings about the, those, those plagues against Egypt, which we've already spent so much time in the book of Revelation um, picturing and imagining. Anything else besides the, um, the waters turning to blood and the, and the plagues? Anything else? All right, so two witnesses. First Kings 17.1. Now Elijah said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So Elijah, the prophet, is given the, uh, the authority, the ability to withhold rain and withhold dew. Then later, Elijah as well, Second Kings, but Elijah answered to the captain of the fifty, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. And fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. So two images, um, the fire coming from these two witnesses, um, and then the uh, withholding rain, the um, sort of uh, being able to prevent rain or even dew from falling. This is clearly a reference to Elijah. And then we already covered the Moses. Um, you know, Moses, uh, the first plague is the blood in the Nile, and then obviously there's other plagues after that. So the two witnesses, they're carrying... Here's what's being communicated to us. Um, I don't want us to fall into the trap of thinking that um, the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. I don't think that that's what John is communicating. Um, I don't think it's Moses and Elijah in a literal way, but rather they represent these two witnesses um, that they are carrying on the tradition of Moses and Elijah. Okay, They are... um, Arguably the two most important prophets in the Old Testament. Um, Moses, first of all, is the first prophet. We often think of Moses as the lawgiver, which he is that. But he's identified in the Old Testament as the first prophet of, the, of, the, of Israel, the Hebrew people. He is the first prophet. And then Elijah, Elijah's not um, the first prophet because Moses is, but Elijah kind of serves as the first, um, the first sort of uh, Israel prophet, right? So all the other prophets that we have in Scripture um, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, some of these other prophets that we've looked at, they all kind of fall in the tradition of, of Elijah. Not to get too far into it, but um, when Moses is leading the people, he serves both as a king. He's not a king, right? But he serves as a king. He serves as a judge, we say. Um, and he serves as a prophet. All the judges in the book of Judges um, serve, and, and Joshua as well, they serve as both Judges and prophets. So the judges fill that role of, of, pre, of kingly as well as prophetic roles. But whenever Israel demands a king, they start, getting, uh, they start having kings. And so, but a king can't hold the prophet, prophetic role as well. They just hold the, the, the judging role, the, the ruling role. And so then there's this, this kind of offshoot of people who become the prophets. Elijah is the first one, right? Elijah is the first person who come, becomes the prophet um, in the in the sort of the line of, um, of of Israel specifically, maybe not Judah, but in Israel, Elijah becomes the first prophet. And so these two become really important for understanding the prophetic role Moses and Elijah. The things that Moses and Elijah do are prophetic, and so these two witnesses that are being described in Revelation, not on a literal level, are they Moses and Elijah, but they are. Um, they are serving in the, the, the tradition 
of Moses and Elijah, the prophetic tradition. So they serve on that role, um, uh, in, in the role of that prophet, of those prophets. All right, and so, and this is kind of just a, a minor note. Um, it's not that one of them has the Moses sort of uh, prophetic skills and one of them has the Elijah prophetic skills. They both seem to have both, right? It's, all, it's always there. Fire pours from their mouth, not just one of them's mouth. Um, they all have the authority. They both have the authority to do each of these plagues. So it's not that one of them is Elijah and one of them is Moses. It's that both of them are coming out of that tradition. Um, and then second, um, along in that, uh, an understanding that these are not literally Moses and Elijah. This is one of the most important things about understanding what these witnesses represent. Um, here at the end of this verse. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Um, anybody remember hearing about lampstands in the book of Revelation? What do the lampstands represent in the book of Revelation? Got to go all the way back to chapter 1 on that one. So, um... These two witnesses um, represent, uh, if we go back to chapter 1, what we see is, Then I turned to see whose voice it was that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And then later on, closer to verse 20, we hear the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the lampstands represent the churches. So the lampstands represent the churches. Now this is also an Old Testament image. Um, it, it is back in uh, Zechariah. There's an image of of two lampstands and two olive trees. The olive trees trees are sort of, um, that's where the fuel for the lampstands come from, right? Olive oil makes uh, the lamps burn, right? And so the lamps um, represent in the, in the book of Revelation, the church, churches, right? Now we go from seven lampstands for each of the seven specific churches now to having two lampstands um, and two olive trees that represent the, um, the churches here. Um, and so we, we need to understand there that the two witnesses together, right, not separately or individual, we need two witnesses according to Deuteronomy because one witness wouldn't suffice. We need two witnesses. And so the two witnesses together serve as a symbol for the entire church. All right, so think about this passage um, with that in mind. The, the lampstand or the, the, the witnesses that we're hearing about, they represent the church. A lot of times when you hear people interpret this text, um, there's a lot of people that want to say that, want to predict who these different witnesses might be. It might be this church leader. It might be this president. It might be this global leader. It might be so-and-so. They want to pinpoint these two um, uh, witnesses to two individual peoples. But that's really kind of ignoring the rest of the text. The text makes it clear that we should be thinking about the church. Um, and the church, specifically, in in the the lineage of the prophets. So in other words, not just the churches, but the prophetic role of the churches. So the, so the, so the churches are kind of in John, and I mean in the Revelation here, are given a prophetic role. The churches have the role of the prophets as a whole. Not, not one individual church, not one individual Christian in the church, but the churches as a whole has a prophetic role. Um, and so... Um, Again, I don't think that this is a code for some future prophet that will appear that we need to be prepared for and looking out for. Um, but rather, they are cert- these two witnesses together serve as the church. They represent the church and the prophetic role that the church has. 
Um, this is a helpful way that uh, N.T. Wright puts it. John doesn't mean that Moses and Elijah would literally come, and he doesn't mean that there will be two individuals that will come someday to carry out what chapter 11 says. That is to make the sort of that is to mistake the sort of writing that this is. What John is saying is that the prophetic witness of the church in the great tradition of Moses and Elijah will perform powerful signs and thereby torment the surrounding unbelievers, but that the climax of their work will be their martyr death at the hands of the monster that comes from the abyss. Um, and so again, this is what the whole book is about, a call to God's people to bear faithful witness to Jesus and his victory, to remain faithful that and to, to bear it in a prophetic way. Um, so uh, Richard Bachman says, the two witnesses represent the church and its faithful witness to the world. Their story must not be taken literally, nor even as an allegory, as though the sequence of events in this story were supposed to correspond to a sequence of events in the church's history or future. The story is more like a parable, which dramatizes the nature and the result of the church's witness. The story is to dramatize what will be happening all the time when Christians bear, bear faithful witness to the world. And so it's not just something that is going to happen one day or something that did happen, but rather it's this um, sort of cosmic truth of what the church is supposed to be. The church is supposed to be a faithful witness to Christ. And so we continue by seeing what happens to the two witnesses. Um, I think I have time to do this. I'm going to play just a few minutes of the video. I, I get this image and this poster here behind you. We have, we have not played this video yet at any point. The, the whole video is online. If you're interested, you can find it and watch it. The, the Bible Project, uh, the Book of Revelation. Um, but I'm going to play this uh, this video. It's just a part of it. And it's going to bring us back actually a few chapters. It's going to bring us back to the beginning of the trumpet blows. Because remember, we're still in the trumpets. Um, and we're still making our way to the trumpets. So the, this video is going to start there. So um, And it's going to kind of start immediately. So make sure... Uh, you're listening because he's going to get started immediately on, on this, the way it's going to play, hopefully. Let's see if it's going to do it for me. Now, with the seven trumpets, John backs up and he retells the story again, this time with images from the Exodus story. So the first five trumpet blasts replay the plague sent upon Egypt, and then the sixth trumpet releases the four horsemen that came from the first four seals. But then John tells us that despite all these plagues, the nations did not repent, just like Pharaoh didn't in the Exodus story. So it seems that God's judgment alone will not bring people to humble repentance before him. Then John pauses the action again with another intermission. An angel brings the unsealed scroll that was opened by the Lamb. And just like Ezekiel, John is told to eat the scroll and then proclaim its message to the nations. Finally, the Lamb's scroll is open and now we will discover how God's kingdom will come here on earth. The scroll's content is spelled out in two symbolic visions. First, John sees God's temple and the martyrs by the altar, and he's told to measure and set them apart. It's an image of protection taken from Zechariah chapter 2. But then the outer courts in the city are excluded, and they get trampled down by the nations. Now, some think that this refers literally to a destruction of Jerusalem that happened in the past or will happen in the future. But more likely, John's following the tradition of Jesus and the apostles, who all used the new temple as a symbol for God's new covenant people. In that case, this is an image about how Jesus' followers may suffer persecution by the nations, but this external defeat cannot take away their victory through the Lamb. This idea gets expanded in the scroll's second vision. 
God appoints two witnesses as prophetic representatives to the nations. Once again, some people think this refers literally to two prophets who will appear one day in the future. But John calls them lampstands, which is one of his clear symbols for the churches. So this vision is more likely about the prophetic role of Jesus' followers, who are to take up the mantle of Moses and Elijah and call idolatrous nations and rulers to turn back to the one true God. But then, all of a sudden, a horrible beast appears. Let the reader remember Daniel chapter 7, and the beast <coughs> conquers the witnesses and kills them. But then, God brings them back to life and vindicates the witnesses before their persecutors, and the end result is that many among the nations finally do repent and give glory to the Creator God in the day of the Lord. Now, stop. Think about the story so far. God's warning judgments through the seals and through the trumpets did not generate repentance among the nations, just like the Exodus plagues only hardened Pharaoh's heart. But the Lamb, he conquered his enemies by loving them, dying for them. And now the message of the Lamb's scroll reveals the mission of his army, the church. God's kingdom will be revealed when the nations see the church imitating the loving sacrifice of the Lamb, not killing their enemies, but dying for them. It is God's mercy shown through Jesus' followers that will bring the nations to repentance. And this surprising claim is the message of the open scroll that John has placed at the exact center of the entire book. After this, the last trumpet sounds and the nations are shaken as God's kingdom comes here on earth as it is in heaven. So now we know how the church will bear witness to the nations and inherit the new creation, but who is that terrible beast that waged war on God's people? And how will the whole story turn out? John will tell us in the second half of the book of the Revelation. Okay, so this um, sort of comes to the, the... We're kind of closing out this, the way that this particular video breaks up the sessions, but I want to review what they just kind of talked about. So we go back to chapter 9, and the trumpets start blowing, um, and we think about not just the trumpets, but even the um, even before the trumpets, we had uh, the seals breaking, right? And you have all of this sort of chaos, these plagues that are coming. Um, they don't produce repentance. They're, that is specifically said in chapter 9, the nations don't repent. And so nothing that has happened up to this point has resulted in repentance. Now, um, you know that that's been the that's been the the purpose of that. And the same with we go back to Revel, or to the book of Exodus. Why do the plagues come to Egypt to get Pharaoh to repent and release the people? Right to 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 turn away from what he was doing. And so that um, in the same way that that the Pharaoh doesn't repent, but finally he just lets them go. Even after he does let the people go, he still hasn't repented. Right? He goes after them. He wants to go after them. And so Pharaoh never repents from from his evil, from, from trying to enslave the people. In the same way, the plagues in the, in the book of Revelation, the nations refuse to repent because of the plagues. They do not, it does not result in repentance. And then, you'll remember last week, we, uh, we kind of, uh, we, we were teased a little bit with another set of seven, the seven thunders. Remember, we talked about this last week. Um, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write them down. Now this comes right after the chapter after, um, the beginning of chapter 10, right after the end of chapter 9, where we're told that the nations refuse to repent. And so it's almost like we've got three sets of, three sets of seven in the book of Revelation. We have the seals breaking, we have the trumpets breaking, and we have the bowls. What it sounds like in chapter 10 is that there was almost another set of seven, the seven thunders, 
But instead, John is told to not write that down. Don't, don't write down what you saw there. Basically, kind of giving you the impression that we're done with that. That method of, 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 of judgment and pouring out and, and plagues is not resulting in, in repentance. And so there's, a, there's this pause, and we're still in chapter 11 kind of coming out of that same pause and that, that kind of refusal to, to not allow the trumpet or the, the thunder to, um, the message of the thunder to be spoken. And so, again, all that to say that it's almost like, well, these plagues didn't work. Let's throw some more plagues on it and see if this will get them to repent. But instead, it's saying, no, we're, we're done with the plagues. Um, in this particular image, obviously, we're going to come back to see some images of plagues again. But in this particular image, we're done with plagues. We're going to try something different we're, we're, or we're done. You know, it's they've given, we've been given their chance. Right. But then what we hear is when we get to chapter seven and we hear the, the, the church described as these two witnesses, they bear they bear witness to what Christ has done. They, they embody what Christ has done. They live faithfully and they um, are killed and then vindicated for it. They're raised to new life. Um, and that, in the end of chapter 11, we're told, does result in repentance. Um, and, and the way it's described is that the people give glory to God. They, they see what has taken place. They've, um, they've killed these witnesses. They've even rejoiced over their death. But then, um, the, but then whenever the, the, they are vindicated, they are raised to new life and brought up into heaven and the nation's witness that um, they do repent from their sins and they do um, they many do turn from their ways right so all this to say and this is what the video is saying um, the the plagues of God's judgment like those that Egypt experienced as told by Exodus and those that Israel experienced as told by Joel and other prophets it does not result in repentance but faithful witness to Christ in his way of loving sacrifice does result in repentance Violent judgment doesn't, loving sacrifice does. Um, and that, that really seems to be the message of this chapter. Um, and, and then it is then that we get uh, the, uh, the seventh uh, trumpet. And the seventh trumpet, um, there seems to be some, some thunder and some, uh, some drama here. But just listen to the seventh trumpet in 15 through 19. It doesn't sound very much like the, the rest of the seals opening or the trumpets. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Then the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, singing, We give you thanks, Lord God Almighty, who are and who were, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations rage, but your wrath has come, and the time for judging the dead, for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and all who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hell. So we don't really hear anything about more death and, and plagues, but rather that the new creation is beginning. And this is just really just a taste of what we'll get to when we get to the end of the book of Revelation. Just jumping ahead there and getting the image of, of the kingdom of God has come in this particular part of the book. And so, again, we jump over a lot to get to that, that image. Um, but this serves sort of in the middle of the book of Revelation as a pause to say, once again, to give hope to those that are reading that all of this destruction, that, that is the, the source of God's judgment, it's not going to result in people repenting. It's going to come, 
It's not going to result in the people repenting. But what will result in the people repenting is if the, if the church lives faithfully and bears witness to Christ faithfully. So how do, people, how do we get people um, to turn from their ways? How do we get people from becoming Christians, from joining the church of Jesus Christ? Is it by throwing, hurling plagues down on them? No. It's by um, bearing witness to the faithful way of Jesus, right? By living in the way of Jesus. That's what ends up resulting in people coming, to, coming into the church and repenting um, and turning from their ways. All right, so I'll give you these questions for reflection. Uh, we got a few minutes. Um, the measuring of the temple is a reminder of God's presence and support in the midst of suffering. What sort of assurance does this bring the first readers of Revelation? So I'll say, um, whenever this earlier I said that I think combining those two those two images of the temple being measured and protected, and the people being protected, um, and combining that with the image of the witnesses, when we look at that as as one large image, um, I think what it produces is that not only will faithfulness to God, faithfulness to the way of the Lamb, um, see us through, right? See us through suffering. See them even even to the other side. Of suffering and death, um, it will also result in the repentance of many. I mean, that's what the, the the final image there in the book of Revelation is. When we live faithfully, even in suffering, even in persecution, uh, many will uh, repent and change. Um, if we understand the two witnesses to be symbolic for the church, I have two two questions for you. I'll just um, list them, and you can um, they're on your page. You can bring those home and think about them. Um, so, if we understand the two witnesses to be symbolic for the church. In what way might we say that they torment those who live on earth? Right? Like if the witnesses are bearing witness, or if the witnesses are the church, um, and the church bearing witness to God in a prophetic way, what does it mean for them to torment those who live on the earth? That's a strong, a strong language, right? Um, I hope that we understand that it doesn't mean, again, that we literally are, are torturing or forcing people. Um, some in, in Christian history have interpreted it in that way that um, we just got to force people to be Christians, right? We got to force people to follow Jesus, right? That's not what is being said there. Hopefully we understand it more symbolically. Um, and then what does that mean for our local church? What does it mean for our own local church for these two witnesses and their faithfulness to be um, symbolic for the church as a whole? Um, those are two good good questions to think about. And then finally, while the vision of the last trumpet is a hopeful vision of the end, how does it speak to the purpose and existence of the church today. While the vision of the last trumpet is a hopeful vision of the end, um, we don't want to leave it there, right? We don't want to leave the, the hope of heaven, the hope of kingdom, um, the, God's kingdom to just be something far off, but we want it to, to affect and change how we live today. So how does it do that? How does it speak to the purpose and existence of the church today? Um, I just want to read this final quote, and I'll let you go. I found this so, um, so helpful. The church is not the kingdom of God, but it looks towards the kingdom of God. The church, under the reign of Christ, makes the pilgrimage towards the kingdom of God and is, and is its herald, proclaiming it to the world.
the church may be termed the fellowship of aspirants to the kingdom of God. In other words, we are not the kingdom of God as the church, but we aspire to it. Not just we wait for it, not just we sit back and and wait for it and hope for it, though we do that. But in that hoping and in that waiting, we also serve as as God's um, church and body in the world. And then he goes on to say this, the church is not a preliminary stage, but an anticipatory sign of the definitive reign of God. A sign of the reality of the reign of God already present in the world, but awaiting the coming completion of the reign of God. So in other words, I just love that image of that idea that the church is a sign. We are a sign of God's kingdom. That is our call. That is what it means to bear faithful witness to what Christ has done, is to serve as a sign of God's reign. In other words, look out there in the world. There's a lot of evidence that says God's not reigning. But when you look at the church, the way that the church should be bearing witness to God is by saying God is reigning um, and God will, um, God will come and establish God's kingdom, the coming completion of the reign of God. Um, so that's what it looks like to be the church in, a lot of, in so many words, um, to be an anticipatory sign of the reign of God, right? We are a fellowship, fellowship of, of people who are aspiring to the kingdom of God. We aspire to God's kingdom even before we are there. All right, well, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Oh God, we love you and we thank you for this day. We thank you for um, your word, the book of Revelation, for, um, for the words of wisdom and call, the, the um, challenge of the book, um, especially the challenge to the church, to us as a church, to be faithful witnesses, to be a faithful witness to your kingdom as it is, um, as it is coming, Lord. Help us, O God, to aspire to that kingdom, O God, faithfully and bear witness as a sign of its coming and establishment here on earth. We love you and we praise you. Go with us, O God, in Jesus' name. Amen.